It was July of my third year of residency, and we got a patient from the emergency room who came up in four-point restraints. This was a man who had lived on the streets and had a known history of schizophrenia. EMS brought him in because he was acting erratically. In the ED, they noticed that one of his legs was massive, hot to the touch. They tried to scan the leg to see if he had a DVT or cellulitis, but he screamed at anyone who came near him and physically threatened staff. I woke up with nightmares about this patient for weeks. The first time I undid his restraints, he lunged at me, and the next day he eloped three times. Psychiatry guided his antipsychotic management, but it was days before he was calm enough for us to complete imaging. So we treated him empirically with both blood thinners and antibiotics until we could get more diagnostic certainty, and eventually Doppler showed a clot. When I think back to this case, I feel shame and guilt and a profound sense of inadequacy. I was trying to be a good doctor, trying to lead my team empathetically and model compassionate care, but when I had to jump out of his way to avoid being hit, I ordered Haldol and restraints. The only part of this case that feels redeeming came months later, when I was walking home from an overnight shift and saw him sitting on the stoop to my apartment building. He was back on the streets, but he was free, and his legs were back to normal. In our last episode, we talked about an ethical framework meant to help you weigh the pros and cons of treating over objection, but theory can be hard to put into practice. Today, we're going to talk about the -the on-the-ground experience of caring for these patients, the logistical challenges, the emotional burden, the role of surrogates and consultants. Welcome back to At the Bedside. I'm Margot. I'm Tamar. And I'm Joffer. And you'll recognize our expert, Dr. Prager, from our last episode. I think that you're dealing with fundamental ethical principles over here, and you owe it to yourself, to the patient, to the profession of medicine, to take the time to do it right and ethical. He's a pulmonologist and the director of clinical ethics and chairman of the Medical Ethics Committee at Columbia. Last episode, we introduced the seven questions Dr. Prager and his colleagues came up with to help decide whether to treat a patient over objection. We want to start by reviewing that framework and talking about how these questions apply in the tough case Margot just described. So the first question to ask ourselves is, what is the likelihood of considerable harm if we don't treat the patient? The more severe the likely harm is, the more we need to consider moving forward with treatment. The second question is how imminent this harm will be without treatment. This really dictates how long we have to think the whole dilemma through. Man is not going to die from cellulitis immediately. He could get septic, obviously. This is not really imminent. But if he does have a significant DVT, it can embolize at any moment. It's like a ticking time bomb, like the sword of Damocles. You just never know and you feel very uncomfortable, especially since it sounds like this was a pretty swollen leg. So the imminence there is questionable, but it could be catastrophic if something like a major pulmonary embolism occurred. For the third question, we need to weigh the efficacy of the treatment we're considering. And for the fourth question, we need to ask about its risks. There's obviously great in both cases. With antibiotics, with anticoagulation, obviously the efficacy is great. The risks Well, the risk for antibiotic, unless the patient has multiple, multiple allergies, is pretty low. But the risk of anticoagulation, here again, I think clinical context is important. Just to cite an example, what if this man had known metastatic lung cancer, okay, and he had a brain met? Now, giving anticoagulation to somebody with a brain met is something you don't want to do. And you're a little bit in the bind in that situation. And of course, having lung cancer, he might have a DVT, et cetera, et cetera, be hypercoagulable. But assuming that the patient didn't have any other significant comorbidities, the risk of major bleeding is pretty low, especially with our newer agents today. So I would say that that, I put that on the low side and saying efficacy clearly outweighs the risk. 
The fifth question is, what will be the emotional effect on the patient of forcing this treatment on him? For example, we need to think about whether he could lose trust in the medical system. For the sixth question, we need to consider what this patient's reason is for refusing and whether we can ethically justify overriding that reason. And finally, the seventh question is what are the logistics of treating this patient over objection? And this case brought up how important it is to look at the whole picture. There are logistical concerns not just in delivering the treatment, but also in getting the diagnostic tests that help decide what the treatment should be. I think the mistake is not thinking ahead and saying, what am I going to do with this information that I am forcing this patient to undergo, this test that I'm forcing them to undergo? I think a common mistake is adhering to the medical textbook approach to every diagnostic question and saying we have to check up all the boxes. You know as well as I do, we do an awful lot of testing that's not that critically important. We have check boxes. Somebody has chest pain. We got to do A, B, C, D, E. But really, when you have a patient who's objecting, maybe we just have to do B and C and not A, D, E. And I think that's really where you have to, you know, emerge as a clinician, as a, the art of medicine, not just the technician who checks off the boxes of these are all the things that I have to do. It's especially important when you're dealing with a patient where there may be problems with afterwards. Diagnosing stage four lung cancer in a person who is objecting and objecting, you're not going to give this person chemotherapy. So it's not that critically important to know every organ that may or may not be involved. You have to think ahead. What am I going to do with this information? How can this be helpful to the patient? Will it be possible to implement the treatment strategies that this test may show us? In this case, the test was necessary to determine whether the patient needed antibiotics or anticoagulation and also how long he needed to remain inpatient to receive that treatment. The logistics of sedating this patient for the Doppler, again, depends on the patient. If he's an otherwise healthy man, and you can sedate him. If he's somebody who has horrendous emphysema, CO2 retention, that's risky. Then sedating this man could result in respiratory failure. Now, beyond the tough consideration of treating over-objection, this case raises another incredibly difficult issue. Restraining a patient for his safety or the safety of others is a deeply morally distressing decision. We'd need much more time to have a real discussion about the rare circumstances when these measures could potentially be justified and the impact they can have on the patient and the care team. But we still wanted to touch on this point with Dr. Prager. The safety of the medical personnel is paramount. That's number one. may sound selfish, but it's the right thing to do. Part of medicine is having to do things that we don't want to do or don't like doing. I think the ethical thing to do is to do your due diligence to make sure that there are no other options and not do it sloppily or a snap of a finger, just restrain the person. That's wrong. But if you've done your due diligence and it is universally agreed that this is the only option, then you have to do it. And I think you should at least feel that at least there was no option. This is part of my job. I have to do this. At this point, I've had a few years to think about this case. I've thought about our use of sedatives and restraints, about how unprepared I felt, about the pain it caused the patient, the nurses, and everyone on the team. And while this case certainly didn't have a happy ending, I do think we chose the least terrible option. The alternative would have been letting this man die of a treatable medical illness. And while I can't fully forgive myself for the restraints, it would have been far worse to let him die. Mm -hmm. 
Now we want to turn to a different set of logistical questions, which came up for a patient I cared for several years ago. This was a middle-aged woman who was brought to the hospital for strange behavior and was displaying psychotic symptoms that by all accounts she had never had before. Laughing gently in response to internal stimuli, grandiose ideas about her ties to celebrities, wandering into other patients' rooms for no clear reason. She was older than you would expect for someone to have a new diagnosis of schizophrenia, so we consulted neurology and they recommended a lumbar puncture. Her family consented, but the patient refused, saying she didn't need it. We were thinking about getting a court order to do the LP over her objection, but one afternoon we got her brother on the phone, who talked the patient into lying on her side and allowing us to do the tap. Everything ultimately came back negative, so psychiatry took over her care. So this case brings up several interesting points, and right now we'll break down three of them. First, we'll talk about the formal definition of consent, second, the role of consult services, and third, the role of surrogates. To start, I think this case nicely illustrates the difference between consent, assent, and refusal. Consent implies that the patient has capacity and it's informed consent. You've told the patient what you're advocating, you've told them what their options are, you've told them what the potential pros and cons of each of the options are, and the patient makes a decision and consents to a particular treatment, or they refuse a particular treatment. And the assent is when a patient does not object to a particular recommendation or to intervention, but the patient lacks capacity. They don't object. They really can't give a formed consent because of their underlying psychiatric or medical condition. Obviously, we should at least understand that assent is not the same as consent, and we have an ethical obligation to make sure that at least somebody in that person's life understands the issues and can consent for the patient. You know, sometimes we take for granted that we're getting consent from patients who really don't have the capacity to offer that, an issue we don't look at too often since they're doing what we want them to do. Ethically hazardous, but sort of the complete opposite situation. Not treatment over objection, it's treatment without full consent. I will bet you that if I were to go on the ward now here at Columbia or any hospital and I were to do a strict capacity assessment on a medical ward, I'll bet you that up to 30, 40% of the patients would fail the capacity test. How many of those patients had a psychiatry or ethics consult when they agreed to the procedure? None. I think that we probably end up getting a lot more assent than we think we're getting, and we think we're getting consent. And I think it's good to be honest with ourselves. Having said that, I don't want to make light of it. I think that for relatively small procedures and small interventions, I don't think it's a big deal. I do think it's a big deal if we're talking about major surgery, if we're talking about major treatment, chemotherapy, and something like that. I think it really behooves us to make sure that patient can give informed consent and really knows what's going on. And if not them, then get somebody one of their surrogates. The second major point this case brings up is, what consult services should be involved in cases of treatment over objection? I think any time that you're going to treat over objection, unless it's ultra-emergent, you don't have a chance to call anybody, I think ethics should be involved. If it's clear that the patient lacks capacity, I don't think you need to call a psychiatry. Psychiatry could be very helpful, though, in, in cases just like the one you showed, where we need some type of sedation for the patient, absolutely. Or if the reason for the patient's lack of capacity may be amenable to psychiatric treatment, obviously psychiatry should be called in that case. And it may not just be clinically indicated, these kinds of consults can be legally required. For instance, in New York State, psychiatry needs to be consulted if a patient lacks capacity for a psychiatric reason. 
there are way more state and hospital-specific policies than we could break down here. But just know that you may need more hands on deck to do these cases right. Your local ethics consult services will likely be aware of when lawyers need to be involved, so they can be a big help here and should be involved whenever possible. But what if you're dealing with an emergency and a patient is refusing a life-saving intervention for a reversible problem? If in doubt, and you think the patient's life's at risk, treat. If in doubt, opt for life. And we'll deal with the fallout later. You don't want to lose a patient or have a patient suffer significant morbidity because we're on the phone trying to get a hold of ethics or, or, or legal or whatever. The ethical thing to do is act in your patient's best interest when the stakes are that high. It's a judgment call, obviously. There's no equation that you can plug in the variables and come out with the answers. As long as you can justify that you acted reasonably, I think that's all that's necessary. People are not looking to cast stones at doctors for every possible reason. People want to give doctors the benefit of the doubt in an emergency situation when you can make a reasonable case for having treated. They allow that. that that's allowable. That's appropriate. That's ethical. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals right to your door ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash Coriam50. Use the code Coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code Coriam50 at factormeals.com slash Coriam50. And the third point, what's the role of surrogates? In general, surrogates are a critical part of providing care to any individual who lacks capacity, and especially in cases of treatment over objection. Surrogates are obviously almost always very helpful, and I think they're helpful in this way. They're helpful in giving us background on the patient. The patient now lacks capacity. They're making no sense. Who is this person? What is their background? What's the psychosocial issues, et cetera? And they can provide us with important contextual information that will enhance our ability to come up with an ethically appropriate recommendation. While they can help us understand the patient's wishes better, they're not there to be the ultimate judge of whether treatment over objection is right or wrong. The information and consent they offer on the patient's behalf is just one piece of the puzzle. Just because a surrogate says go ahead or don't go ahead doesn't mean it's the ethical thing to do. And I'm not casting aspersions on surrogates. I'm just saying if you have an ethically fraught situation, they are no greater ethics experts than anybody else. They may do this out of love and clearly out of the right motives, but just because they say operate on my father or dialyze my father or amputate my father, it doesn't mean that that is ethically appropriate. If you feel that it's appropriate to treat over objection and the surrogates agree, then that's great. Then you have backup with surrogates, ethics, medicine, etc. But there may be a situation 
where the surrogates say, I don't care what my father says or my mother says, I want you to treat them, where you may feel as a physician that it is unethical, that it's wrong. And in a situation like that, I personally would not automatically knee-jerk say, okay, the relative is saying, go ahead and treat. No, I would use the same seven questions to analyze the situation because we're dealing here with ethics. Is it right? Automatically outsourcing the decision to surrogates does not remove the ethical question. We covered a lot today, so I wanted to close out with a recap of the main points. As Tamar discussed, when considering tests and treatments, you may have to veer from the gold standard approach, which tests are actually going to change your management, and what treatments are feasible for this specific patient in this specific situation. We also touched on the subject of restraints, violence, and moral distress. And while each subject in itself could fill a book, the key takeaway is that safety has to come first for both the patient and the staff. Then Joffer walked us through the difference between consent, assent, and refusal. We discussed the consult services that should be involved. Psychiatry should often be on board, and ethics should definitely be called unless the treatment is so emergent that there's no time to wait. Finally, we talked about how surrogates can help us understand the patient's needs and preferences better, but we shouldn't shift the burden of ethical decision-making onto their shoulders alone. Dr. Prager gave us one final piece of advice. I have a mantra. The ethics flow from the facts. The more you have the medical facts, the psychosocial facts, the easier the ethics is. And again, it's a question of sitting down and taking the time to get those facts. When I cared for the patients we discussed in this episode, I was trying to do the right thing, but it was hard to know what the right thing was. These cases are humbling, but I think humility is warranted when you're trying to balance ethics and dignity and emotions are running high and the logistical problems are piling up and the decision you make might actually be a matter of life and death. While there are no easy answers for cases of treatment over objection, we hope these two episodes can help point you in the right direction and work through the emotions that may come up along the way. Thanks for tuning in. We know these topics can stir up more questions than answers, and we look forward to hearing more about your experiences with treatment over objection. Please continue the conversation with us online at our Facebook page, on Twitter, or email us directly. Find show notes and contact information for us on our website, coreimpodcast.com. If you enjoyed listening to our show and you'd like to provide a podcast recommendation over objection, please give us a review on iTunes or whichever podcast app you use. It helps other people find us. We work really hard on these podcasts, so we'd love to hear from you. Let us know what we're doing right and how we can improve. And as always, opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Finally, special thanks to all the collaborators in this episode, our wonderful audio editor, Doc Shpatia, our illustrator, Michael Shen, endless technical support from Harit Shaw, moral and executive support from Shreya Trivedi, and most importantly, thanks to you, our listeners. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, 
Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.